Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 850 with Laura McCutcheon. Food's emotional. You know, like that, it's ironic we're talking so much about marketing and emotion, but I mean, when you're told that you can't eat something, it sounds stupid, but you grieve it. You know, like it's not like you're going on a diet and giving it up. Like you're you're giving up like social experiences. You're giving up, you know, a sense of normalcy. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And I have to say, I haven't come across a restaurateur using Seven Shifts that hasn't been completely satisfied. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communications, tasks, tips, and more all in one place. And because you are restaurant unstoppable, listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. Today's episode is brought to you by Margin Edge, a restaurant management software that uses POS integration and invoice data to show you your food cost in real time. Margin Edge gives you your prime cost daily, so there's no surprises at the end of the month. By totally digitizing your back office, your team saves hours on paperwork and gets instant insights to manage food costs, labor, and budgets in the moment, not weeks after the period ends with supply chain disruption and labor shortages. Making real-time data-driven decisions is more important than ever. Because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, Margin Edge is going to cover your onboarding costs. That means you get 60 days free to get started and up and running before you make your first payment. To learn more, head to me.margineedge.com slash restaurant hyphen unstoppable or find the banner in the show notes. Today's episode is brought to you by DiagioBarAcademy.com, and I cannot be more excited to be partnering with Diageo because we have such similar missions. We want to share knowledge and transform the industry. Diageo Bar Academy equips bartenders, servers, managers, and hospitality professionals with the insights, stories, and tools to be better They are consistently raising the bar on industry standards, and no matter what your skill level is or knowledge or availability, there's something for you at DiagioBarAcademy.com. They have master classes and live events, and if you can't make those master classes or live events, there's recordings, so you can watch it on demand at your convenience at www.DiagioBarAcademy.com. That is D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com get over there what's going on unstoppables we have a great show for you today but a quick reminder that we do need your support you can share this podcast with anybody you know who's aspiring to be great in the industry Uh, you can subscribe so you never miss an episode you can support our sponsors you can use our affiliate links and you can come hang out in restaurant unstoppable network where you can be a part of the conversation and uh, your membership really does support the show so today we're talking to laura mccutcheon and laura has a super inspiring story so before uh 
she was down in Tampa. She was up in Ohio. And while she was in Ohio, she was working as a marketer. She would do everything from advertising, uh, branding, business development, uh, loyalty programs, email marketing. She was a marketing whiz. Uh, and during her time up in Ohio, she discovered that she had celiac disease. And uh, her her son was also dealing with his own illness where he couldn't eat gluten. So she decides to move the family down to Tampa because that's where they need to go to get the medical support they need. There's a specialist in Tampa, who, who a doctor who could help them. So she moves the family down to Tampa. Uh, and while they're in Tampa, they start a blog, or I should say her son starts a blog, her son Taylor starts a blog and the blog takes off where basically it's a lot of parents reaching out to Taylor because their kids have celiacs and they're just trying to figure out, you know, what can they eat? Like, and how can they make this, this disease be as least impactful on their children as possible. And Taylor was helping all these parents across the country doing that. And that blog turned into a business where they shared the best gluten-free and vegan uh, allergy-free products, which then eventually in 2018 turned into Hale Life Bakery. And Hale Life Bakery is dedicated to gluten-free and vegan baking, uh, offering gourmet cupcakes, donuts, cakes, bars, brownies, and more. So basically, the reason why this is super inspiring, in my opinion, is because Laura took something that would have, you know, most people would have just given up or they would have just chosen to be depressed or whatever she chose to create her illness or turn her illness and her son's illness into an opportunity and they're thriving today because of it and these i got a chance to eat their baked goods they're so good you would never know that they're vegan and gluten-free this also reminds me of something that i learned and why i actually started this podcast if you're looking for something, you're likely not the only one, and that could be an opportunity. I was looking for a podcast to learn from successful restaurateurs, and Laura was looking for basically good gluten-free food or just a way to feed her son and to, to continue to eat the things that she loved before she was diagnosed with celiac disease. So I don't know, just really inspiring, and not to mention in this episode, she has some really great marketing advice because that's what she was doing before the bakery. So with no further ado, here she is, Laura McCutcheon. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, the founder of Hale Life Bakery, Laura McCutcheon. Laura, are you feeling unstoppable today? Absolutely, every day. Yes, I cannot wait for your story. I did a little bit of, of research this morning. I love the way you guys got started as small and scale into something greater, right? Yes, yep. So we're going to pull back the layers on that. But first, let's get that motivational inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? All right. So I'm a Napoleon Hill junkie. Ooh, I love and so Napoleon. the quote that I always try to focus on is most people's greatest success comes one step beyond their greatest failure. Most people's greatest success comes one step beyond their greatest failure. Why does that resonate with you? Uh, because I've had a lot of failures. <laughs> but how, how, how much stronger were you every time you came back? Uh, so much stronger. You know, I, every, you know, thing that you fail from, you choose to either learn from it or get defeated by it. So I try to learn from anything that stands in my way. I can't wait to pull back the layers on these failures you've had. Uh, and on the note of Napoleon Hill, cause not many people, I, I think when you hear the name Napoleon Hill, the first thing that comes to mind is thinking grow rich for most people, yep. right? Yeah. But I have to give a pitch to his book. Uh, is it Dancing with the Devil or Flirting with the Devil or something with the? I think it's Dancing with the Devil. Dancing with the I Devil. Think. I'm gonna have to look that up. Um, but the audio version of that book is ridiculous. I don't know if you had a chance to listen or read that to that book. So I typically read books. I don't listen to books, but um, I haven't had a chance. 
Oh, it's Napoleon Hill outwitting the devil. But if you if you are into audiobooks and you're listening to this and you're a fan of Napoleon Hill, that audiobook, the narrative, the whoever plays the devil in that book, it's like theater. It's amazing. But anyway, back to your story. <laughs> so where does it make sense to start sharing your story? Like when did you I mean, you didn't like you said, you had a lot of failures before starting this bakery. So what were you doing before the bakery? Um, so my background's actually branding and marketing, but uh, I used to do just the traditional type of branding where you think about graphic design, designing logos, stuff like that. Um, but as technology grew, I ended up getting more into online marketing and um, working with nonprofits and doing data aggregation and thinking, doing more about logic flow, um, understanding how consumers think and navigate through websites and how they consume um, information through the web. This is a huge asset to have, especially right now. Yes. And I don't want to get too ahead of us, but like, let's just bookmark this experience because I feel like in a world where we're increasingly relying more and more on digital, uh, most restaurateurs don't have these skills, right? Correct. So you're, you have such a leg up and I don't want to pull back the layers on that, but take it from like, what were like, what was the first business you had? Cause you said you had a lot of failures and I know you were doing other things or I don't want to make assumptions. Yeah. So I wouldn't, I mean, I, I don't think anybody would classify what I had was a failure. It was just, it didn't, it's not what I'm doing right now with the level of success. So um, I had a marketing company where I just kind of worked out of my house. I ended up growing and bringing on bigger clients from doing that. I ended up starting a nonprofit, which was an event based nonprofit um, about educating parents um, about the importance of setting. That's another huge skill set. Events, right? Sorry to yeah. interrupt, but yeah. all these little nuggets are going to serve you later in life. So these, when you do, we're doing your branding in your in your graphic design, and then that evolved into digital marketing. Were these your businesses, or were yes. you working for? Oh, these were your businesses. Yeah, I these thought. were my businesses. Okay, okay. Yeah. So um, let's start pulling back the layers. You said you started first with just uh, the visual aesthetic, graphic design, branding. Uh, people who are listening to this podcast right now who have to develop a brand, like what were some of the big lessons you learned in, in that element with, with developing a brand? I mean, it's really, um, so when I would try to create a brand, it's such a simple, basic concept. It's connecting your product with the consumer. So it's understanding your product and how that product connects with the end person who whether it's a business whether it's somebody a customer coming into a restaurant whether it's somebody buying a product at a store it's understanding how the company that you're creating connects with that consumer and clearly concisely communicating that so when we're developing a logo or a design like what's the first step for for me, it's thinking about the colors, thinking about the emotion. So also, I was a big, big believer in emotional branding. So how that product emotionally connects with that consumer. Um, Coca-Cola was a really big founder in creating those campaigns back in, you know, the um, late 70s and, you know, people smiling and drinking stuff and uh, doing things that were emotionally based, you know, sharing a Coke together. So when you're creating a brand, even though it's a logo, that logo has to remulate and like, um, like reflect everything that's a part of that brand. Why is emotional branding so important? Or why, like what is happening with emotional branding that makes it 
Well, now it's evolved even more. So now you're looking at social media and social media is like based on pictures, not just like words and, you know, things that you hear over the radio. It's about visually seeing the emotion that, you know, ties you into wanting to have that product. Mm. Um, So when you're creating a a brand, you said you you start with the colors and and you try to like what how do colors evoke emotion? I mean, there's all this, you know, if you take classes or, you know, like there's color theory. So like the, you know, for me, like my brand is about healthy. And so naturally green and organic colors and everything that has to do with, you know, organic natural things would tie into that brand, at least to me. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's a lot of color theory back then, you know, behind like restaurants, red and yellow and that inducing, you know, you wanting to eat and making you hungry. You're reminding me that I've been wanting to do a whole episode dedicated to the meaning, like the, the emotions that colors communicate. So there's a reason like I, my colors restaurant stoppable logo, green and blue. Mm-hmm. And I chose those colors because green, like you said, uh, healthy, wealthy, uh, green for money too. And then blue, um, also that communicates loyalty, trust. And like, those are, I mean, that's what I'm trying to say. We're here to, to, to gain your trust, we're here to mm-hmm. to be loyal to you, and we're here to kind of put you on a path of wealth and in, in health, mm-hmm. in mental health, emotional health, financial health, right? Correct. So these little things make a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what about, do you need to think about who you're, t- so you, you said you got to think about colors, but also I'm, I'm assuming target market must, you got to start there too, right? Like who, who am I trying to communicate to? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the first thing yeah. is like you figure out who your key target, audi- audi- target audience is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So how did we evolve into, you know, visually branding and design to more digital? How did that evolution ha- happen? So it was interesting. Um, I got pulled into a project. I, I can't even remember how I found the project. I th- it was online. I think it was like a posting on Craigslist or something random um, about a project that was about aggregating all the information information and things to do for parents in a local like city. So I lived in Columbus, Ohio. So at that time, this was um, 97, I believe, um, when I got involved in this project, there was really nowhere where you could go um, like in a city and find out the classes to do with the kids or the sporting programs or anything like that. So I got in at the very ground floor and my job was to figure out how to let the parents in that city know that this website existed. This is back in 97. This is like before, this is like before MailChimp and everything really existed. Constant contact. They were there, but it was, they didn't have the tools that are now integrated into those um, email marketing programs. Where was email marketing at that time? Because I mean, I didn't even really start to learn about email marketing until like 2010. For me, in 2012, when I started like learning about entrepreneurs, yeah, I mean, it was archaic. It was, you know, very clunky. You pretty much had to like aggregate your lists all on your own. There was not like the pop-ups to you know collect data, you know, that you get now that are now integrated into Mailchimp or into websites. So you had to be very creative and trying to figure out how to get that person to give you, you know, their email address and then strategically get back in front of them to, you know, think about how they conduct their day-to-day life or what they're doing and how, you know, when they would be looking for this information to get the highest return on investment in your time, your energy, your money. So it's funny because like I, 
for me, like it's, I think it's weird. Like, like how life is all about like relativity for me. Like I thought that when I started learning about these things in 2010, 2012, the idea of building a list was the most important. Like it was a groundbreaking information, but the truth is like, that's been common knowledge for a long time. You're, Mm -hmm. you're only as good as the list of people, the the list of contacts you have. And this goes back to when you were studying back in like 1997. Yeah. Right. Um, and even then, you, and the, the, the lesson is still the same. Build your list and use that list to get in front of your people. Right? Well, build a good list. So uh, what's the difference? What, what's a good list? What makes a good list? It's your target audience. You know, like you, you can have a list of 100,000 people, but if only 1% of those people are the people that are actually wanting your product, who cares if you have 100,000 people yeah. on your list? And what else? How, how else can we make a list of our target audience even better? I mean... It, for me, I actually scrub my list. You know, like what do you mean by that? I see who's opened my emails in the last three months, and if they don't, I just get rid of them. So you, you're yeah. making the the list even more. Yeah, but yeah, because like, why why would you want a hundred thousand people when only one? And then you're paying for those people to sit on your list. That's true. And they're not. They're clearly not the person that you're trying to talk to, or is gonna. Um, give you a return on investment or convert, you know, from being someone on your list to being an actual customer. Yeah. And I'm so happy we're already talking about this and I'm surprised we're talking about it so soon. But when I went to your website, the first thing that I noticed was that pop-up. Yep. Boom. Right in your face. Uh You're not just asking for an email. What are you doing? I'm giving them a free baked good. So you're giving something of value in return for something of value. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But even beyond that, you do something else. And I was curious if, if we're going to get into this. And I, we're a little ahead of the curve right now, but I'm okay with it. Okay. So I don't know. Um, you you don't just ask for a name and an email. You ask them for more uh, information about yes. whether they're gluten free, vegan, or have a food allergy. So why are you doing that? Because we drill our, down our list even more. Exactly. Yeah. You're segmenting your list. Yep. You're so s- when we send emails out, we send emails out based on you know certain needs. new products we have going out, or even our messaging of letting them know, because um, we're an, a gluten free, vegan, allergy friendly bakery, yeah. like a legit one for people that have anaphylactic, like very legit allergies. And we'll get into why you started the business, but I think that um, this is a really great lesson in marketing right now. Is that it's it's you know have a targeted list on your target market, but like get it as specific, like segment it. So the the three questions you ask, so the three options are: are you gluten free? Are you um, I think do you have a specific allergy? And there's another, there's a it's vegan, vegan. I believe, yeah, yeah. So that's your three specific within your target audience. You have three specific types of hyper focused sub markets. Yes. Right. And now you have specific messages going to each one of those people. And I'm sure your conversion rates are much higher than industry standard. It's, it's a crazy conversion rate. What is it? Um, around 32%. That doesn't sound high at first, but average is like 25. Yeah. On, so, on a good list. Yeah. yeah and that, if you're doing 25, you're still doing good. So mm-hmm. 32 is really good. Yeah. What about are you using um, text message, SMS marketing at this point? I don't. I, I haven't really gotten into it. Uh, it's. I feel it's more interruptive rather yeah. than, you know, something that I just haven't really enjoyed it, getting it myself. So it's yeah. not something that I've really put into place. Yeah. I'm The verdict's still out for me. I mean, some of the, when you look at some of the numbers associated with SMS marketing, like a 90% conversion rate, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it might be intrusive for some yeah. people, right? So I see, I see where you're going with that. Yeah. I mean, I, I am not 
like opposed in, or I would tell people not to do it. It's just not something that I've, and it's also not in my wheelhouse, quite yeah. honestly. Yeah, so. I can, I can respect that. So back to our storyline. Um, so you evolved, uh, your branding to be more digital, to be more, uh, email marketing, but you also started getting into like human behavior too. Yeah. So how is that different from what we've discussed so far? I mean, it's just really, it it goes back into like a brand. So it's really just truly thinking about how people um, conduct themselves when they shop or when they're looking for a particular product. So um, I I might be getting ahead of ourselves, but like in our branding for the bakery. So I'm, I'm my customer. I have celiac disease. I have a dairy allergy. I have a ton of other allergies and intolerances. You're making my heart break. (laughs) Um, So what I think about when it goes into our branding, which branding is more than a logo or colors or your tagline or any of that. It's also how your employees conduct themselves. It's how people dress. It's how they feel when they walk into your store. Everything. Absolutely everything. So my bakery has meant uh, when you walk in, it's meant to feel like an extension of your home. It's homey. It's very like woods and like furniture that would be in a house, but also very professional. Our employees are all trained from the beginning to be empathetic because with somebody with food allergies, I walk into a place and I'm pretty on edge. You know, I also feel intrusive. I feel like I'm a nuisance because I ask all these questions. Typically, when I go to a different restaurant, I don't feel understood or heard definitely not safe you know i feel like i'm taking i'm rolling the dice and taking it so all of our employees are trained to understand everything that's in our foods we have an ingredient book but they're mainly trained to be empathetic and patient yeah and to be like we're here for you i think we can i think there's a i'm gonna make a note because i'd love to kind of pull back best practices when it comes to uh not just being like meeting like code to be like you know safe for serving food, but also like how to do it well in from like a, a heartfelt place. I think we can pull back some layers. Yeah, there. yeah, and it's definitely I can one hundred percent understand how a standard restaurant would struggle to do that because there's a lot that goes into running a restaurant and training staff and stuff like that. But yeah, it's definitely important. Uh, there's a few resources out there about uh, oh, some, they're escaping my mind. I'll, we'll come back to that later. So we'll, when we're talking about the digital marketing, the human behavior, and all these new tricks you're learning, that was with the nonprofit that you're developing the skills, correct? Part of it, yeah. And part of it came from the online program that I was working on. And then I started to also consult nonprofits, large nonprofits, and um, fundraising. What was and- your specific expertise? data aggregation and like creating campaigns to convert people from doing whatever the objective was getting them to do that through digital marketing. Wow. What a great skill set to have before opening a restaurant. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) I I never once knew, you know, thought that that would be, you know, one of my greatest attributes to being able to successfully open a bakery, which I had never done before. I never worked in a bakery. I worked in the food service industry, but it's definitely a key piece of why things have been as successful. It's a universal skill for sure. For sure. Yeah. Um, you were working, you, you said you were doing a nonprofit where you really were behind, uh, events. Yeah, it was very event driven. So, um, it was 
pretty much putting on very large events um, that was aligned with, so it was in Columbus, Ohio, um, and it, the nonprofit was called Follow Me Healthy Parents, Healthy Kids. It was based on educating parents about the importance of setting a positive example in the home to fight childhood obesity. Okay. So um, what I did, though, was I, that was the whole um, program, the whole basis, and so I partnered with the MLS, with the um, minor league baseball team with Ohio State University, with the Blue Jackets, with the NHL, had them who aligned, had programs that aligned with that initiative, bring out all of their elements to a really big mall, outdoor mall there, and put on really large events that also had all these little elements that supported um, the whole objective of educating parents and fighting childhood obesity. There's a a big lesson to be learned in aligning your brand with other brands absolutely and tying your brands to brands that have influence and that can give you exposure yep get into that and how to do that well how to, how to how to approach big brands like the nhl like um all the different brands that you mentioned that can help you kind of you can slingshot yourself right yeah so um again all these things were just i was very fortunate to be a part of it so as a part of i got invited into a marketing leadership roundtable in columbus ohio and the whole objective was putting all these people in a room that had aligned um objectives so we just pretty much sat down and for five minutes we all told everybody in the room what we were working on and then you would just sit there and pinpoint and identify oh that person has this going on i can and then we had like a two-hour cocktail hour which was nice lunch, yeah. I am. <laughs> but all these people it was like the director of marketing for the blue jackets with nhl the director of marketing for and so uh, i was very fortunate to be in that place but what it taught me is you, these different organizations or different people have objectives that you can align yourself with and you can give and take and create something. If you can give something to them, they have something to give to you. Yeah. Creating and, those win-win situations, right? Yeah. And this program ended up being part of the let's move campaign for Michelle Obama it ended up being part of uh, governor Kasich's state initiative and little old me, a little Laura, you know, I was not even 30 at the time had this big, massive camp, you know, program that, had 8,000 people come out a day. And I mean, but it all came from aligning and initiatives and, you know, being able to create reciprocal partnerships where I had something to give to them, which was an event and exposure. And they also had objectives with the NHL and all the, like to go out to so many events, to reach so many people with their message. Yeah. And I think this all starts with the, just the, the lesson here is the value of having a mission, right? Absolutely. Instead of just being, we're in business to make money. We're in business to make money and also to create awareness around something else. And when you have a mission, when you have a purpose, you can, that gives you an, an opportunity to align with other people. If you don't have a mission, if you're just in business to sell food and that's it, then it's hard to align yourself with other people because yeah. you don't have anything to share. Well, right? and your mission doesn't have to be a philanthropic one. It could just be give, you know, provide good food that in yeah. great customer service that makes people feel great. But, and, but you always have to follow that mission, you know, like, or even if your mission is to serve our community, right absolutely. now, now you have a commonality with other people in your community who also want to make your community better. Right. So it's just the, the power. And we actually just talked about this the other day when I was interviewing Peter Lazar, uh, who introduced me to you. Uh, he got into the power of, uh, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and having, 
uh, tapping into that, that self-actualization where people live to serve a purpose, right? Absolutely, yeah. And if you can get into that point, if you can find other people that in, in align your, your definite purpose in life with other people. And for a lot of people, their definite purpose is creating a better future for their children, right? Mm-hmm. That's a lot of people are passionate about that. Yeah. And if, if you can hitch your, your wagon to that, um, you know, it's not in a slimy way, but like you, you can go much further. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, for me, it's all about leaving a legacy too, you know, like leaving this planet and a little bit better of a place or people that interact with me or even my team, you know, like feeling like they're better at having come across my path in one way or another. Yeah. Now in your business today, do you do a lot of events? No, I mean, we do tastings and sampling and smaller elements of it. Uh, but what led into the bakery is I actually created an event-based program and where our current production facility is. And it was the first ever um, gluten-free uh, learning kitchen and support center. So I would hold monthly events that, again, were aligned with products and things, and I would have tasting stations. So people would come into the center, go to these different stations, and learn about these products, but try it in recipes and take home a recipe card so that they can make it at home. Yeah. So what did we, what did you learn about, uh, event management during this time that serves you to this, this time in your life? Um, I mean, there's a lot of skills to event management that are very, um, helpful in a restaurant. It's, um, being able to pivot and not get stressed out because you pretty much have to anticipate something's going to go wrong, regardless of how much effort you put into making everything right something's going to go wrong and you have to be quick on your feet to pivot and figure it out. The other thing is detail. You have to be so detail oriented and so organized and just know exactly what's going on. You also have to plan so far ahead, but you also realize all the work is leading up to that day. And if you do that right, your day is pretty darn easy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm loving the conversation. So anything, did anything happen between, uh, your time with, uh, this nonprofit and opening your cafe? Cause we're still in Columbus, Ohio at this point, you know, we're, we're in Tampa Bay now. So at what point did you come down to Tampa? So, I mean, it's kind of interesting how I even got into the gluten-free vegan and allergy friendly. So the reason why I started the nonprofit about childhood obesity was I was really, really sick at the time. Okay. I didn't know what was going on. I went from doctor to doctor, and um, I ended up being told by the last doctor that I saw that I was hypoglycemic, that I possibly had lymphoma, and that I was put on this really crazy diet. And um, I ended up then being diagnosed with celiac disease, Mm. and um, I was extremely sick. My son was really, really sick at the time, ended up getting diagnosed with celiac disease, along with a lot of other very serious rare health issues. And we ended up finding a um, specialist down here in Tampa that um, specialized in uh, the blood disorder that he had. So we moved down here, but that was after I was diagnosed with celiac. He was diagnosed with celiac. This was also 13 years ago. Okay. Well before gluten was understood or available or, you know, um, or even the medical industry understood celiac disease or autoimmune diseases. I mean, because you're so close to this and I don't want to get too much into a rabbit hole, but I'm recently, I've been having some issues eating certain foods specifically like gluten. Uh, and I thought maybe I might be gluten intolerant. So I got tested. turns out I'm not. So I don't know what was going on. Maybe it was, uh, just, um, a, uh, I'm having a, such a brain fart right now. Um, 
I thought maybe I might have an ulcer, uh, and I, I didn't know what was going on. So I, I recently have more of an interest in this. What was happening in our world that all of a sudden everybody just can't eat bread? What, what's what's going on with that? Why is that a thing? So what has been pinpointed from the research and from everything that I've read and who I've interacted with is a lot of it turned when we started to introduce the microwave and processed foods. The microwave? That's the first time I heard that being... Well, that's when like processed foods became very like more... People went from having meat and potatoes and sitting down and having a wholesome dinner to like having a processed dinner. And then that ended up being introduced more and more and more processed foods. So mid 80s, late 80s, early 90s, like all of our food started to go from like eating natural whole foods or eating that more people having gardens in their backyard, you know, like doing things that were more natural to like consuming lots and lots of processed. So it wasn't the fact that we're uh, vibrating water molecules that got people sick. It's the fact that by doing that, it made shitty food so convenient. That is. Yeah. The level of consumption of gluten and wheat was just dramatically increased as well as the manufacturing process of wheat. It went from like a really small grain to being like massive grains and being like reformulated. So they made the grain larger for just yield purposes. Yeah. So all the the chemicals and what, like what stuff had to happen to that grain to get it that big? What was going on? I have no idea. I okay. don't know. Yeah, I don't know that much information about it. But from like I've been really involved in the industry for almost 13 years. And from what I've heard, it's the amount of consumption that we have. And then the, the way that it was reformulated to be, you know, mass the, produced. The amounts of uh, processing that went into it, but yeah. also the volume of carbs that we're eating went way up. Yeah. I also think there's also just been misdiagnoses. So I have celiac. I've definitely had it my entire life. I had stomach issues from when I was a baby. I had migraines all growing up. I was in high school. I had very bad, like hospitalized. And they ended up telling me that, that I was making it up and that I had IBS sent me on my way and then ended up at 30 figuring out that I have celiac. So does my son, like it's a genetic thing, you know? So, um, back then they didn't understand it. So there's a lot more people, there's a lot more education, even in the last five, seven years about celiac and about gluten, you know, being associated with inflammation and all that type of stuff. You think about it, like bread wasn't something we even ate until 10,000 years ago. Right. Right. Like that's not a natural food for us. That's that. That's like the beginning of like where our whole lifestyle changed. It was our ability to farm wheat and grains. Then we started to realize that we can ferment this, and a little can go a long way. And why are we traveling around when we can just stay right here and make bread? Right. Right. And then bread ten thousand years ago wasn't made out of wheat. It was made out of potato or you know like other grains. Yeah, so. and it was also a long, slow process where you have the you know the, the process of making bread of having the yeast break down all this stuff and like it's doing most of the work for you and you're actually eating yeast byproduct, right? You know, so that that major your you you could process it much easier, which is why some people can eat gluten free or not gluten free um. Uh, sourdough breads, right? Because they're th- that's the old way of doing things. Right. So I mean, it's, it's very interesting. Most people know this. I don't know why I'm getting into it, but I feel like it's important to the the we have a responsibility. I feel like in the restaurant industry going forward to to not bastardize food. 
you know, we've done a lot of bad things to food over for, for convenience. And, uh, I don't know. Convenience is just one of these things. Everybody we're told that everybody wants more convenience, but do they, do we need more convenience? Is yeah. convenience a good thing at what cost? Right? Exactly. Yeah. So, um, maybe we won't need to go any further into that. <laughs> so back to your story. Um, so you, you come to Tampa because there's a specialist here that can help you. And this is kind of where the story starts for Hale Life Bakery. Right? right. Yeah. So how did Hale Life Bakery, uh, I guess, come from this whole event? So, I mean, it goes back to me opening that event center, um, the support center and learning kitchen. And I did that for about two years. And, and that was actually, in Tampa? That's in Tampa. Yeah. Okay. Let's take a break here to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back to kind of unpackage what happened from here on. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And effective labor management is more important than ever to ensure profitability and restaurant success, especially with this labor shortage. You need to rely and trust technology more than ever before. And dialing in your labor management is one of the most positive, dramatic impacts you can make on your business's bottom line. And when it comes to labor management, Seven Shifts is one of the most, if not the most, organically recommended labor management platforms on the show. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communication, tasks, tips, and more, all from one place. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll system you're already using, like Toast, to make smart operating decisions and turn labor management into a competitive advantage for your business. Restaurant Unstoppable members get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. We're back. And um, you, were, you were just getting into uh, why you went from Columbus, Ohio to Tampa Bay. There was a specialist here and then you created a center. Uh, get it. Take it from there. Okay, yeah. So um, when I was here and uh, after moving to Tampa, I opened a gluten-free support center and learning kitchen, which is actually where our production facility is right now. Okay. I did that for about two years and it was really to like help connect and engage the what I felt like the underserved gluten-free community here um, to, again, identifying when you were first uh, um, diagnosed with having a gluten issue, you know, whether it's celiac or whatever, you feel isolated and alone, you don't feel supported. So I was just trying to create community. a community. A community, yeah. yeah. But also help educate because also you're confused. You don't really know what products are good. You waste a lot of money trying to find the good stuff. You don't know how to, like, make your old recipes you know, safe for you. So the center was really just to try to connect people, but also educate them. Yeah. As that center went on, everybody, we would have like tasting tables and people would be like, this is amazing. Can I buy it from you? And I'm like, well, that's not the purpose. Like I'm trying to teach you how to do this at home. And then they're like, well, you should open a bakery. And I was like, well, that's an amazing idea, but I'm not a baker. So I don't know how (laughs) I'm going to do that. Um, but it kept coming up. So actually, uh, the people that worked our tasting stations were volunteers. 
And I ended up learning that one of our volunteers was a professionally trained pastry chef. Okay. I'm curious, before we get into the evolution of the bakery, this started as a a center, Mm -hmm. a support center. Was this a for-profit? Were you making, what was the plan to develop this into something that you could, you know, It was for-profit. Yeah. So like it was pretty much a philanthropic based business. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I think it's important because traditionally when people get into the restaurant industry, they're very linear. They're like, I'm going to open a restaurant and the way I'm going to make money is by following this very traditional model where, you know, I have my prime costs and, you know, my, my, I pay 30% goes to my cost of goods sold, 30% goes to labor and tax. And then I'm left with 10%. And if I get 10%, I'm doing great. Right. We kind of just accept that. Right. But this is a whole different business model. Yeah. It's a crazy, like, um, outside of the box business model. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's important to show people that you can do different things. You don't need to be beholden to this traditional model and that other business models are far more profitable. Yeah. So before we get into the bakery, what paint the picture of what that just creating community, right? If you focus on community first, how do you monetize that? How do you, how, how are you, what was your strategy to, to before the idea of the bakery came along? So that kind of goes back to my event based background. So what I actually ended up doing was reaching out to gluten free companies like product companies and having them sponsor each table. And then I had them also sponsor the center and then I would create sponsors. Yeah. Sponsors. Um, and then I originally started out having people come and offer it for free but I also learned over time that if people don't have a little skin in the game, they're not going to show up. You know, like you're you're going to spend a lot of time and 100 people are going to register, but only 20 are going to show up because they have nothing holding them accountable to show up. Got it. So I would start charging them a very minimal amount, but I would give them something back. So it essentially ended up being free because they get their $5 or $10 amount back in like free product, you know, and stuff like that. Got it. Um, so you had sponsors. Was there any membership fees associated nope. with this? No, it was just like the fee to like come to the event, you know, okay. come to that session. Yeah. So, but you needed that fee initially because if, if people didn't have skin in the game, then why show up? Yep. Got it. Yeah. Um, that's a really good lesson for any type of member or like any type of event or anything. Like people tend to not take it. People tend to take it more seriously when they put, like you said, skin in the game and yep. they're invested. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, Okay, so from there, people started asking you, uh, can I buy this from you? And I think that's kind of, uh, life will give you clues, right? Yeah. So take it from there. Yeah, so um, I, I'm not a baker. I, uh, I haven't run a bakery. Um, my background's marketing. So, But I ended up finding out that one of my volunteers was a professionally trained pastry chef. She also had celiac. She had a ton of food allergies. So um, I ended up sitting her down and asking her, you know, would you be interested in developing some recipes for me? Um, and so I gave her a bunch of product and paid her to develop recipes while I continued to run my event center program. And then, um, just for about a year worked on trying to figure out if we could make certain items. Yeah. That's another big lesson that I think we linear thinking when we think we're opening a place, we think we have to hire a chef to be on salary, right? right? Where, all you really need is their intellectual property yep. and you need to pay them for that intellectual property. And then you create systems around the intellectual property. Yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we're just, we're just so we're so used to doing things that the old status quo way. Um, why pay somebody on a salary where you just need that, that, the help to, to get to the point where you can take it from there. Right. Right. Yeah. She's still my head pastry chef. 
right. Does, so. does she like on? Is she like? She's is, now salary, okay. and she she's full time. But when you're getting started, you you can't afford to pay somebody. You know, yeah, 50, I didn't know if it was going to work. Exactly. <laughs> like, so you just you find a win win. You you start where you can. Yeah. Right. And I'm sure she was thrilled to have an opportunity to to make some money developing recipes. Yeah, right? and she lo- you know she was passionate about it, and it was something that she enjoyed, and so it was a win win for both of us. For so sure. She, so she developed these recipes for mm-hmm. you. You're still not a cafe. No, no. So what happened after you got these recipes? Um, then I actually started to intertwine them into my events. And I actually did like sneak peek tasting events to get feedback from the people that were coming to our, you know, events to see if they liked it, which ones they liked. Um, and then also ask them questions. I'm all about data. I going back from 1990, I used to always say data is king. So the more data you have, the more calculated and um, decisions you can make, um, the more educated decisions you can make. Like, I'm not about guessing at all. I always want to get as much data as I possibly can. So you're testing recipes, you're collecting data, you're refining the recipes. Mm-hmm. Um, Asking them, what's, what would you like to see? You know, here are the things that I've come up with. What are you looking for? Um, we're all about nostalgia. Yeah. So, you know, it's providing things that people think they would never be able to have again or things that people with food restrictions miss. So like we have a cinnamon toast crunch donut, you know, we have oatmeal cream pies. Those are things from my childhood that I can't have anymore that I miss. So yeah. like asking our customers, I, we do it to this day, you know, um, what are the things that you miss? What would, what, what is the number one thing that you can't have anymore? that you would just like absolutely flip out about yeah. if you could have it again. And this is the reason I keep on going back to Peter is because we literally did like a two and a half hour interview last night. And I don't know if you're familiar with his book. Have you had a chance to check out his I book? I haven't, not yet. You got to check it out. It's really great because he gets into a lot of these things. Um, and I think it, it, and what you're ex- expressing right now is that you're, you're tapping into needs. And Absolutely, a lot yeah. of people think that the restaurant industry is about serving food and the, the food is the experience. And then some people say, no, the, the experience is about everything. It's about the, ambi- the ambiance and all that stuff. And that's really what we're selling. What Peter argues in the book is that we're actually not selling experiences. We're, we're trying to figure out what people's needs are and be in serving those needs and tapping into the, the you know, like again, mentioning Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And we, like if you can find like where people need things, and this is really interesting, your whole you realize that people their needs are to tap into emotions that they can't tap into anymore, the nostalgia right. because of their limitations. Yeah. Right. So that's a need that people don't even realize they need until you tell them, like, remember that thing that you love? Like here's a a rendition of that that will bring back those memories. Yeah. So it helps. I'm, I'm my customer too. You know, like I'm, I think all the time about stuff that I wish I could have that I can't have anymore. I mean, it's, it's horrible that so many people because of what we've done to food are suffering from these, you know, uh, side effects, right. Of our broken food system, but at the same time and open up a whole new market of people that have these new needs of being able to eat like they, they used to and they can't anymore. Right. Right. And it's, it's, kind of sad to look at it that way like that these people who need help are yeah. a new market but it's it's, the it's a very underserved market yeah. if you can figure out how to serve them and serve them the right way safely and like with good quality product you're gonna kill it yeah you're yeah. you're absolutely gonna kill it absolutely um okay so really what, at this point what you have is a minimal viable product you're in your in your you're testing your market and you're scaling you're getting feedback and you're pivoting and you're, you're growing yep 
at what point did you say, okay, when did you know you had something that we could open a cafe? When was that part of the plan? Um, it was about, uh, like I said, we spent about a year developing and testing. So, um, I still had my event center and I ended up converting part of my event center into a production kitchen okay. and it was a very archaic, basic production kitchen. Like it was a actual oven that you would have like in a house and it was just Jackie, my head pastry chef and myself, <laughs> um, busting out cupcakes and stuff out of this little tiny demo kitchen that we actually had built that we did cooking classes up. But so. at the same time, start where you can. Yeah. Right. And that's what you had at that time. And I also why, knew nothing about running a bakery. Yeah, and so. why spend thousands and thousands of dollars on equipment that yeah. you don't know if you're going to need long Exactly, right? yeah. So I so. had a double oven already in that demo kitchen, yeah. which we baked out of and stuff. So so you're baking these things, and you're just selling them at the events now? Are you doing mail order? Or are you like? Um, I built out a very small retail storefront because the um, event space is kind of like a flex space. So there's like a little retail space up front and then the back part is like where we would hold all the vents and then there's like a little warehouse so i converted the front space which is kind of like a greeting area um when there was an events um and put like a counter in there and put some countertop bakery cases it was very basic but so was it open like standard business hours did you have somebody like oh, i gotta remember i mean this is four years ago i it it was open this is only four years ago yeah okay yeah um we just had our four-year birthday October. Well, I'm, I'm surprised because I know you have. Th- I don't have any dates, but I know you're at three locations now. So yeah. only four years ago, you were just testing recipes. Now you're at four locations. Yeah, I'm a little crazy. Yeah, it's <laughs> awesome. I can't wait to talk about how you've been able to scale. Yeah. Um. So we it it wasn't open every day of the week. It was open very minimal hours. I believe it was open like ten to three. Um. Tuesday through Saturday. I think. Okay. Yeah. So again, you, you're keeping your, your overhead as low as possible. Yeah. Like, and when the thing is, when you have something that's needed, people will change their schedules to accommodate. Absolutely. You. Yeah. So like I, I need gluten free, celiac free or whatever mm-hmm. um, allergy free thing, bread or dessert snack. I want it. I know there's only one place to get it. I will I will accommodate that person. Yeah, you'll figure it out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, keep your, your overhead as low as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing we haven't mentioned yet, and I'm, I'm curious about how this, this feeds into anything or if, there were, if you guys were monetizing this at all, but your son started a blog. Yeah. So where did, how does that work into everything? I didn't want to get too crazy about everything. So I actually stopped doing all my marketing stuff and we, my son started a blog. He actually ended up being one of the top gluten-free bloggers. Um, cause he started when he was 15 and, um, ended up having over 1.2 mis- million visitors a year. Jeez. Good for him. Yeah. He started trying to help other kids that were diagnosed with celiac and he learned kids aren't on the internet researching, yeah. you know, gluten-free stuff, but the parents were. Yeah. So his audience was parents of kids that were diagnosed or newly just diagnosed people in general. Um, but he ended up getting all these companies to send him product, you know, wanting him to promote it. So we actually ended up developing a gluten-free online expo and um, an event-based program. We would partner with the gluten-free expos around the country, travel to them, and then we would have clients and set up their booths and then market for those companies like they were actually there. Say that one more time. I just want to make sure I fully understand. So um, we had a gluten-free online expo where we would have clients and then we would pretty much set up a landing page and then promote 
that landing page or that online expo to people online. Okay. And then we also created an event-based program where we would partner. There were two major companies, there were two magazines that had actual physical expos around the country, Austin, Portland, Indianapolis, Richmond. So we would have some of our virtual online expo clients. We had eight to 10 of them that would actually hire us to go to these expos and set up physical booths for them and then promote their products. So these clients are people who make products for... Yeah, like really big gluten-free companies. And they're contracting you out to represent them at these expos. Online or at these expos, Was yeah. that lucrative for you? Was that profitable? Very. Okay. Yeah. So was this was this kind of what created the launch pad for you to do the brick and mortar stuff? That's what created my understanding of all the gluten-free products that were out in the world that actually gave me the knowledge and understanding of how to create the best gluten-free products that I have okay. in my bakery right so, now. So we ta- you, you painted the picture of what's going on. You started with a center locally in Tampa mm-hmm. for people in Tampa. Was that before the blog started or after the blog started? That was after the blog started. Okay. About three years after the blog started. Got it, got it. Um, <clears throat> so it was kind of like your your test market your, to develop because you have all these products, you're, you're seeing what's out there, and then you create this this center to kind of to, to create awareness around what your 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 clients are, what they have right yes. locally here in Tampa, and then that evolved into you developing your own products because you have a good foundation of what's out there, what you can do. Right. Yeah. So like some of my clients would be like King Arthur Flower, um, you know, Enjoy Life, which makes. Chocolate I love chips. King. I, if I would love to have King Arthur Flower as as a sponsor because I love that company. I just recently read a book called Equity, all about employee stock yeah. ownership programs, and King Arthur. What that is an incredible organization. It's an amazing. Do. I mean, yeah. They, yeah. So that's the flower that we actually use. Awesome. But um, and they were part of our um, online marketing program. I'm gonna so. tag King Arthur in these posts. You, you guys know Laura. I'd love to have you as a sponsor. Yeah. Plug over. Yeah, they're incredible. They're <laughs> they're um, getting ready to um I'm gonna do a interview session with them um with their innovation team because okay. our bakery uses their products, uh, only their products and our stuff, and we innovate a lot of products that aren't currently available with theirs. So um in the middle of December awesome. we're gonna be working with them um on put a good word in for me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, let's start talking about when when did this when did you really push to say let's create a brick and mortar bakery? Um so I'm also pretty conservative. You know, I want to I'm all about data. I want to be able to figure out. So, um I opened my brick and mortar out of my event space cuz I already built it out. So, I was going to say D- is this something that the Tampa Bay area needs? Is this something that's going to be received? Do they like this product? Do they want this product? So after opening it just gradually, you know, with Jackie, head pastry chef, I slowly just started to open up more hours, offer more things, refine my process, and then um, just continue to like reinvest over and over and over more time, more energy, more money. I love this approach. And I think, again, people, I think when they, when they say I'm going to open a restaurant, they think they have to stop everything in their life, open a restaurant and hit the ground running at, you know, whatever, eight, 10 hours a day, 
six days a week. Yeah, no, I still had my event program running and I was still doing my online marketing, my online expos, all that stuff, which was actually funding the bakery. Like I, it it was all bootstrapped and self-funded. Swing into it. Yeah. You don't have to go all in all at once and you're actually setting yourself up for failure when you do that. When you take your approach of slowly turning up the gauge, slowly turning up the volume, you, you... you don't get overwhelmed. You, you you can swing it into it in a way. You can also let your cash flow determine what you can handle. Right. right? Yeah. We didn't also offer all the products that we offer right now. I was like, I'm only going to do cupcakes. I'm only going to do donuts and I'm only going to do brownies. What's the significance of only doing a few things? Well, for me, I, it made my ordering process way easier. You know, I had less ingredients. I also had less things that I had to bake. You know, I could streamline my whole production process way easier. Mm-hmm. It also reduced the amount of storage that I had to worry about. Um, it lessened the amount of SKUs, you know. And then when you're dealing with food allergies, the way that we do things is I vet every ingredient down to the manufacturer. And when I find that ingredient... I only use that ingredient. You know, I don't have like 200 different things. I have a very small list of things that I use. And then we figure out how to intercorporate those items into new products. I love it. I don't have anything to add to that. I think you guys can pick up this streamline, you know, it's, it's less is more. Yeah. And I mean, this, uh, I do it that way because of the clientele that I serve, but I think it's applicable to any restaurant is like figure out, you know, the key items that you're using and then figure out how to rework and reuse those products and items to keep your ingredient list as concise and, you know, um, small as possible because having to manage so many, you know, different ingredients and SKUs, it's a headache, you mm-hmm. know, like, and if and you it's can, just you one other person at this time, right? Oh Yeah. Yeah. And I interrupted you. I'm sorry. That's okay. And then just also refining the process. So like when we started out, we were making a blueberry lemon donut and we were making a chocolate chip cookie donut or whatever. And then I was like, well, why are we making all these bases? We're just going to make a vanilla base and a chocolate base and then top them differently and make those donuts, you know, like streamline the process. And it reduced the amount of ingredients that I had to use, but it also then started taking out steps and how to get to the end goal which the customer didn't know any difference whether there was blueberries in the donut or not. If I was able to get a blueberry lemon donut by putting blueberries on top of it, mm-hmm. that makes sense. Gotcha. Yeah. So what, because at this point, uh, hail life bakery doesn't exist. It does exist. Okay. So you yeah. did have the brand. You're not I just the center the anymore. Correct. Okay. What was the name of the center? Gluten away, okay. which was the name of my son's blog and the got name it. of the online expo that we did. Got too. it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So, um, so you start the, the what is the, the, the significance of Hale Life Bakery? What's, how did you come up with that? So um, going back to my branding, um, I, when I had clients, I used to create new words out of two words. And I would go and use, I actually recommend it. There's a tool online called Visual Thesaurus. So I would use this tool and you kind of put in, you know, start with, I don't know, healthy. And then it would pull out all these other, it would create this web and pull out all these other words that you can click on. And then you click on that word. So let's say healthy goes into organic, click on organic, then it pulls out all these other words and you can just drill down and figure out a word or a meaning to something that most people maybe don't know that actually aligns and then create a new word. So I came across hail, which is an old English word that means to live life vigorously without disease or infirmary. Mm. And so our mission is to help people hail however they do. Hail's not a verb, but we now make it a verb. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
that's our mission is to support how people and to help people live without disease or Can you say the name of this resource? That, that It's called Visual Thesaurus. Visual Thesaurus. Yep. And what's the significance of creating creating a word that you own as a brand? Why is that so powerful? I mean, it, it's not easy to do, but if you put enough time and energy behind it, it's kind of like, you know, Google. You know, Google's a word too, you know, but... It being able to create something, I'm trying to think of another word, like Nike, that's one, yeah. you know? So, um, creating a brand behind something that just rolls off people's tongue and it's, then it's like completely yours. You know, when someone says hail life, they 100% know that someone's talking about my bakery. Yeah. You don't have to share that word with anybody no. else. Uh, why is that significant today? specifically i mean it also it goes back into the whole branding thing like it's the the energy the emotion that you you know people feel when uh, the things that are associated with that word uh, emotion goes into everything so when you're creating a brand and creating your own word and creating depth behind that word you know like people ask all the time how do you say it what does that mean and then you say what it means and then it immediately connects with our customer yeah you know they're like i'm here because i can't eat this this and this yeah i love all that um the, the thing i was curious about is the is the the significance with like search engine optimization uh when you online when people like when you have when you invent something a word that you own, right? How much easier is it for you to get discovered? Oh, I mean, way easier. I mean, you still have to put all the work behind it and create all the campaigns and stuff. But yeah, um, the thing that you have to keep in mind though is can people spell it right? You know? So, but um, it does, it definitely helps, you know, when people type in just even like uh, hail bakery or, you know, like life bakery or whatever part of the word it's still coming up at least in the Tampa area. Yeah. And we just did a a workshop recently on copyright and, um, uh, what's trademark trademark. Thank you very much. Um, and one of the the pieces of, of, of advice was if you can invent a word, you're probably going to be very safe because nobody else is likely using that word. Mm -hmm. You don't have to worry about anything. And so if you want to scale a business, nationally for example if you invent a word there's a good chance you're not gonna have any issues later on with somebody else saying no we are the hail bakery right what are the well it's also easier to create campaigns around it you know like emotional campaigns like how do you hail you know or like our employees this is how we hail or you know like we also have shirts that say hail yeah like playing on hail you know like so nice i love that um so at what point did you like really go all in like you said three years ago on this bakery. Yeah, it was actually four years ago. Um, because we did a year before that, um, before we opened. Um, I would say about three years. Like I really like heavily started pushing into it. I pulled back all my other programs and all I did was focus on the bakery. Why? Um, it took the most amount of energy. I it was really hard to continue to do all the other things. Um, it was also something that filled my cup. You know, I was able to connect with customers. I felt like a need was being met. Um, and it was something that I felt like could truly grow and continue to serve people, not only in that one particular location, but throughout the city, hopefully throughout the state. And- yeah. You're bringing up something that's, I think, really important. One of the things um, I'm trying to do more of lately is challenge the status quo. I think there's a lot of buzz out there. More and more people are talking about 
moving business to more digital platforms, delivery only. I think is there more the thing is when you go digitally like you really have like no limitation. So if you open a restaurant, you're limited to the 50 seats that you have in your restaurant at any given time. You're kind of governed by that. Right. But if you go digitally, you can you're governed by your throughput and the demand. How much you can make, how fast you can make it and how many people want it. So you have a much higher ceiling, right? Much more earning potential and lower overhead too because you don't need to worry about the physical space that you need to maintain, which is a huge like rent and all these things, maintenance and all that stuff. So there's much better margins in that model, but at what expense and what you just pointed out, you went from a digital world where you're, you know, have all these relationships, millions of people visiting you every Mm -hmm. year, but you gave that up to focus on something that you said filled your cup. And I think we need to be mindful of like what we're sacrificing for, to get more. Right. Right. But is it really more? Right. I mean, my mission and my goal is to like serve, you know, like, and to serve an underserved community, one that I'm a participant in. So like being able to actually physically see and hear, you know, like, thank you so much for being here, you know, like, or now my son, my son hasn't ever had a donut, you know, and like see tears of joy, you know, like actually be able to make, it's a donut. I get that. But it also is giving somebody some sense of normalcy or giving a parent, you know, or a person that feels like they're never going to be able to have something again. Food's emotional, you know, like that it's ironic. We're talking so much about marketing and emotion, but I mean, when you're told that you can't eat something, it sounds stupid, but you grieve it, you know, like, it's not like you're going on a diet and giving it up. Like you're, you're giving up like social experiences. You're giving up, you know, a sense of normalcy. And when you're able to give that person that back, it's you, you see, you see literal joy. And yeah. I wasn't getting that by my online marketing. Exactly. Programs and stuff and like I think that. we need to, we need to be aware of that because like as, Back to human needs, right? Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We need to be seen. We need to be valued. We need right. we need people. We need that. Millions of years of evolution. We are tribal. We need each other. Yeah. It's baked, literally, pun intended, into us, yeah. right? So be mindful of that. Like, fill your cup because at the end of the day, what's the point? Right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, that's, I think what you're getting at is if, we go and convert over to delivery, that human interaction is super important. You know, like having somebody sit in your seat at your restaurant and giving them great customer service and giving them the thing that you created and seeing that emotion on that person's face. There's a lot more that goes into it rather than just dropping off a bag at their house. You think suicide rates are high now? (laughs) You know, I hate to get mortal or gruesome like that, but it's true. Like emotional you know, health is something that needs to be really considered as we move into the future, yeah. as we get more digital, you know, we need, we need each other. So, yeah. um, okay. We can get off that subject. So it's a little grim, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so take us through the lessons you learned, the failures you had, the challenges you face in opening your first location, your, your first brick and mortar. Oh, um, I mean, I'm sure everybody, um, in the restaurant industry or just running a business people, that's the toughest thing about running a business. Is which, which aspect of people? What do you mean? Managing personalities, mm-hmm. you know, managing expectations, um, communication. Everybody has different styles and forms of communication. 
Um, it's actually talking about mental health. I, I go to therapy. I'm actually going to therapists to help figure out how to be a better communicator, how to be a better leader. You know, um, it's, it's important to lead by example. You know, it, it's a lot of pressure, you know, to be that person for all these people mm-hmm. every day, but also making sure that you clearly communicate all the things that people need. Pivoting through growth, managing growth has been an extreme challenge. You know, I, I've grown a lot and I've actually tampered it down. I could have done a lot more. Yeah. Um, but it's also extremely important to manage quality, you know, quality control with customer service, with our product, you know, all those things. COVID obviously created a lot of issues with supply chain, with staffing, um, with just the natural things that, you know, people not being able to get to you and getting your product to people, all that stuff. So let's go back. You started with talking about the challenge of communication being a better communicator, um, managing the different personalities in that you're, you're seeing getting therapy to get better at this. Mm -hmm. Uh, What have you learned about better communication? How have you evolved as a better communicator? Um, I mean, I, I have a lot of like just stuff that I'm working through, but I've learned that my past stuff has like caused me issues, you know, dealing with conflict, you know, um, having those tough conversations. So like just learning to also walk the line of, you know, I'm all about like building a positive culture and team environment. And I'm very close with all my team members. We connect because we all, most of us all have same health issues and stuff like that. So figuring out how to be their friend, but also being the bad guy at times, you know, and being comfortable being that bad guy, you know, understanding that having those tough conversations garners respect out of the right people. If you don't get that respect, then maybe they're not the right team member for you or the right fit. So it's just like a a big learning curve of growing personally and taking on additional responsibilities and challenges. And I I take being that leader extremely seriously and leading by example. And but also, what does that mean? You know, balancing work and life. You know, I take a lot on, so I feel like I should be there all the time. Well, these people don't expect me to be there all the time, but I put that on myself because I feel like I need to be that leader. So it's just managing my own personal expectations as things grow. Also managing other team members and their personalities. and What have you started doing to manage that? Because I think what you're describing, a lot of people can identify with. So how are you being better about understanding that you don't need to put this pressure on yourself? What's the, the inner dialogue? Um, it's just understanding more about myself. I mean, I, I am probably hardest on myself than other people are on me, you know, and I think the level of expectations that I have on myself, like I I leave and I'm like, well, I'm going to continue to work. I don't think they care if I'm continuing. I've always, I've been there since four 30 in the morning, you know, like they're, they're all like, you work too much. It's the pressure to be the hardest working, to set the expectation, to set the culture, to set the standard. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you, if you slow down, people are going to see that as the new standard. That's the fear. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So how are you, how are you walking yourself? How, what, like, how are you getting better about knowing that that's not true? I mean, um, there might be a little bit of truth to it for being honest, but knowing yeah, that you, I mean, you, you got to find a balance. I definitely work a lot still, you know, so it's, but also like, I also want to set the expectation. You don't have to work 80 hours a week, you know, like there needs to be a good work life balance. Um, I'm also very honest and I tell them that I'm going to therapy. Like I, I, a lot of my team members feel like they need to be perfect or hold this accountability on themselves. And I'm like, well, I'm not perfect. I'm the owner. Like I, I have stuff that I'm working yeah. through and the, you know, I'm a work in progress. Yeah. Like it's okay. There's a lot of power 
and vulnerability too. Yes. Uh, and when you get vulnerable, when you're vulnerable, that builds trust. Yep. And trust, what's the power of trust? Do you, it's loyalty. Yeah. Yeah. P- like the speed of trust. Yeah. Right. When people trust you, it's like lubrication. Like things can happen a lot faster. You can hand things off because you trust that person. Yep. And, and when you get vulnerable, when you open up, when you show, when you think about a dog, when a dog rolls over on its belly yeah. or rolls over on its back to, and it exposes its belly, like that's a dog being vulnerable. And in that moment, how much do you want to love that dog? Yeah, absolutely. That's the same thing. That's well, it's also, it's a little bit easier to get people to do things that are outside of their box for you. You know, yeah. like they, they're going to step up to the plate and they, they have a, more of appreciation, you know, and, and going back to loyalty to you. Like I'm really focused on retention and keeping my team members around. Like I don't want to go find new people. I want to keep the people happy that I have because it's easier. You know, they, they're already trained, but I can, I can trust them. You know, I can trust them with everything. So what's your strategy for keeping these people around? Treating them like humans. Yeah. Being respectful, you know, um, asking them about how their day is, you know, like, being and being vulnerable myself, sharing personal things about myself. But again, it's a struggle keeping that line, you know, of being their friend and being their boss as well. Is it keeping people that's caused you to grow at such a quick rate? Um, I think it's finding the team members that we have that have been loyal. Yeah. Like I, I have an incredible team, you know, I'm always going to lose people and there's always going to be some, you know, weirdness <laughs> with some people, you know, like there's always not amazing hires and you work through those things. But I mean, I have, I mean, Jackie's been for, for five years. I, I just started hiring people about year th- three, just past year three. I have 19 people now, I think, but I've also added two new locations since I've one in May and then one in August last year. So a lot of those people are new, but most of those people have been there from the beginning of that location opening. Well, how much opportunity have you provided people since? There's also, there's always opportunity for growth. Well, that's the thing, right? Yeah. Like if you, if, and I don't want to put words into your mouth, but when you have people and you take them on and, and you're, they're concerned about their needs and what they need. People need to grow. People mm-hmm. need opportunity. So if you can be that opportunity, if you can be that growth, that's a win-win situation. Yeah, right? it's opportunity. I, I give them more money. I try to as much as I can because that goes a long way. You know, everybody likes more money. But I also try to give them opportunity for education, like learning, opportunity for more responsibility, you know, opportunity for advancement, you know, going from manager or just giving them additional responsibility with a raise, you know, because as we're growing, I'm only year four. I have, I have so much additional needs for new processes, more, you know, um, more um, managers and, you know, leadership that I didn't need last year. So I always let people know, like, this is a growing business. This is a growing company. I'm looking for these key attributes, you know, accountability, responsibility, um, attention to detail, um, and empathy, you know, not only, and being a good team member, you know, thinking about your other team members at, as well as yourself, you know, don't leave your space messy for the next person to clean up. Do you want it that way? That's culture, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's culture. You also talked about quality control when I asked you what your biggest challenge is. Uh So what have you learned about quality control? Um, I mean, it starts with the person, you know, with people, you know, emphasizing that this is the way that things need to be like in setting a standard. Um, we have a very strict standard because, uh, you know, we cater to a very, um, specific 
group of people. Um, but it also comes down to like, for me, like everything has to look the same every day. Like if a donut's topped, it has to look exactly the same. The reason why is because our customer, if I feel like if they come in and it looks different, they're probably going to think that what's in it is different Mm. as well. So it goes from like the care and the thought being put into how that donut or cupcake or whatever is topped. It transcends into what that person thinks on how it was made and what went into it from the very beginning. So what tactics and strategies do you implement to maintain quality? I mean, we have very detailed processes. So like our recipes are measured by the scoop, you know, by, you know, it's very detailed the way that things, every team member is trained to top things in a very specific way. Like there's just very detailed laid out processes for everything. Yeah. So you need, again, it's not, you can't be people dependent. You can't have one person that knows how to do everything. You need to to create systems around those Mm -hmm. recipes. Everybody's trained on everything too. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Uh, but when you create those recipes and those, and those standards, you, you have the framework to, to educate. Correct. And, and it makes training easier, mm-hmm. right? It's not just, you don't just rely on repetition. No. Like you rely on a, a framework that you can point to and say, this is the picture of perfection. Yep. Right. We have all that. I mean, we have one-on-one training that you're trained and then you're given you know, your recipe book. You follow your recipe book. There's also pictures and then you follow in that person trains and then you give you're given a little bit more leadway where you do something with that person by you but you're doing it on your own and then you do it on your own and through different steps and that person checks back in and Beautiful. then you do it all on your own so um back to this this idea of challenges like your biggest challenges uh, we talked about communication we talked about quality control what else has challenged you in scaling uh, that you've faced recently supply chain well yeah so how i mean i've is that out of our control right now, would you say? I think it's out of control. I mean, it, it's like one new thing every day. You know, or not every day, like every week. Like, I just struggled finding spinach. But for, is there anything you can do to change that? You have a lot of money and stockpile it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, well, I guess I'm saying. Every single thing that yeah. you have. Uh, I don't know. It's like an environmental challenge, right? Yeah. Where it's, it's almost like just because of the state of our economy, the state of the world. Yeah. Uh, there's just more demand than there is supply mm-hmm. right now. So uh, how do you deal with that? Except that that's going to be something that is a part of what we're dealing with right now. Yeah. I don't, I, uh, I don't want to get political. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know. It's there right now. It's accepting that I can't control certain things. Yeah. Yeah. I, and mm-hmm. I don't know where else There's, to go. Yeah. That's it. the, I guess I was saying like, I was trying to, maybe trying to alleviate this pressure that that's not necessarily on you. Cause I think everyone's having that challenge, but no matter like that's just one of those things where it's like, what can I do? You know, yeah. like if it's not there, I can't get it. Yeah. Right? So. Yeah. That's it. I mean, so yeah, I mean our ingredients are extremely specific. So like if I can't get our butter, it's not like I'm going to go find another butter. I'm out of butter and yeah. I can't make anything. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a, it's a very, very big stress, Yeah. but like it, it's also what, like you said, what am I going to yeah. do? I think so. there is some solace in knowing that you're not alone. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So it's a, what, if you're experiencing that, everyone else is experiencing it too. So know that you're not alone. Yeah. Know that it's a, a, a we thing and not a you thing. For sure. Right? Yeah. I mean, everybody I talk to, it's supply chain and staffing. 
So yeah. So um, I can't believe how fast time is going. We're already at like an hour and fifteen minutes of recording time. It goes by fast, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. So one of the things that I'm trying to uh, is there anything we have not discussed yet? that you were hoping to discuss as far as things that you do especially well, that if more people knew this information, this skill set that you have, this knowledge that you've gotten, the industry would be better. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, it's just been, uh, all of it has been a huge learning experience. You know, I, the biggest thing has just been being very specific on, my standards like and not wavering from them I mean mine's very specific so like my standards are we're gluten dairy egg soy peanut tree nut free we're free of animal byproducts artificial sweeteners list goes on especially during covid it would have been easy to like when I ran out of something be like well I'm not going to be soy free anymore like I only have you know three percent of my customer base actually wants me to be soy free i could well that would actually diminish my brand quality and standards because if i'm going to get rid of that then what else am i going to get rid of later you know and my customer trust exactly it's like the frog in water right exactly when you're when you're boiling a frog like if you just turn the heat up and it goes over time like right there's a big change but it's when a small incremental change you don't notice it yeah. Right. And then not um, not wavering on quality control. You know, like I'm very adamant that things should look a w- certain way, be a certain way. But also when we develop new products, I'm not going to put out a new product unless it is on the level of where we're at. And there's been certain times that has taken us a year and a half where when we started, it was good. Like people would probably be like, this is a pretty amazing product, but it's not a hill life quality. Like mm-hmm. it's not like you eat it and it's exactly like the thing that you had before or better. So what's that process of getting the product to where you need it to be? It's just, um, it kind of goes back to those tough, tough conversations. You know, my, um, head pastry chef's very passionate and she's amazing at what she does, but she, um, it's just like knowing what it should taste like. And then also giving it to other people and letting them give you feedback but she developed we were working we're working on some savory stuff i'm working on these um like egg bites these allergen friendly gluten-free vegan egg bites kind of like when you go to starbucks and they have the egg white bites she made them and we're doing it out of with mung beans and creating like putting peppers and stuff in it and she gave it to me and it straight up tastes like grasshoppers. <laughs> so how do you tell somebody that? I told her, I went to her and I was like, you're not going to like me. I'm like, I like your egg bites taste like grasshoppers. And she's like, what do grasshoppers taste like? I'm like, it tastes like your egg bites. I don't know what to tell you. Like, <laughs> so, I mean, she, she took it well as yeah. she, she didn't think they tasted like grasshoppers, but I've um, had grasshoppers for the record and they're actually pretty good. Are they? Yeah. I mean, I, it tasted like what grasshoppers <laughs> smell like is all I can say. So, um, but she went back to the drawing board and tweaked it. She's like, all right. And she's like, well, you definitely have like a more palate that's sensitive to bitterness. And so she went and added a tweaked it and yeah. now they're amazing. We haven't yeah. released them yet, but they are definitely like on a level where, and every, you know, asking other people. Not everybody thought they tasted like grasshoppers. Yeah. For the but. record, I have had a grasshopper omelet. It was really delicious. Was it? Yeah. So yeah. I was in Thailand for a little bit, and that there's this market, and I was trying to eat everything I get my hands on, um, and I got grasshoppers just to see what it was like. But they give you a bag of grasshoppers. Yeah. I'm like, I'm not gonna eat this whole bag of grasshoppers. So 
I was like, how am I going to use this graph, this grasshoppers in like my everyday life? And I was making like grasshopper, uh, grass. put it in the yeah, filling, salad. like just yeah, like, like vegetables, onions, peppers, and grasshoppers. All <laughs> right. omelet. It was delicious. It was funny. Cause like there would be like an egg, like a leg sticking out of like the omelet. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, back to our, our story, your story. Um, so one thing I want to start asking all my guests before we go to the speed round, uh, the mission statement here at restaurant unstoppable is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. So how have you transformed? How has the Hill Life Bakery transformed yeah. the industry? No, how have you personally how, transformed? There's a behind every great restaurant, there's a great person, right? So how have you transformed? Oh boy. Um I would say that I went from being behind the computer to being in front of people. And also I went from being a a respected leader in you know, like when I did the nonprofit to being a a leader within a very specific community and under my roof. Mm. And I personally, even though when I was doing the nonprofit, I was I was doing stuff like this. I was going into news radio stations, I was on, you know, our news stations, I was doing all these like big events, I was standing on stages, I was talking to teachers. I feel like I'm making a bigger, bigger impact now mm. with my small team of eight, you know, 18, 19 people and our customers that walk in and are able to have a product that they trust. Yeah. I like to use this analogy when it comes to impact. When you think of like, when you're making a, a when you have a, a wide reach, right? Yeah. Um, you think of a big flat surface that's, that you have, it's a lot of surface area, right? You're covering a lot of surface, but if you take that and you lift that big thing off the ground, like, like this big thing with a big surface, take it 10 feet off the ground and you drop it, it's going to make a boom, right? But it's not going to go deep because that, that pressure is being right. spread out. But when you take all, say it's a 10 pound weight, right? But you take all that weight and you put it on like a little one inch surface, and you drop it from 10 feet, right? It's going to go deep. Yeah. Because all that weight is going deep into a community and that's impact. And that's what feeds the soul. And that we need more impact. We need less, fewer shallow impacts, bumps and more deep impacts locally. We need to see each other. Yeah. You know, and then that, that's the analogy I see when I think of what impact is. Yeah. I like that. That's great. Cool. Um, again, inspire and power transform the industry. What needs to change about our industry? What's wrong with our industry? What's broken about our industry? Well, this comes from a personal standpoint. Um, I I just think that there needs to be more education in like food allergies and restrictions in restaurants. And I completely understand. And I actually, I've been dealing with this for 13 years. So I know as a consumer, I'm the person taking the risk when I go out to eat. It would be helpful though to have even just a broad level of education um, because the community is pretty darn big and it's growing. There's so much data and statistics behind the amount of people that are being diagnosed earlier on with food, you know, allergies, restrictions, but also with gluten. Yeah. So like just even basic things like shared fryers, you know, the staff members just having some sort of sheet that they, cause I feel a lot more comfortable, even if a staff member brings me a piece of paper that has, this is what yeah. is okay for me to eat or whatever. I know a lot of places do that, but if it's just, there's a little bit more education taken um, to somehow connect the kitchen to the consumer and what is safe. And so where's not. the best place right now to go get educated on this? Um, I mean, th- that's the problem is like the there's um, the GFCO, the 
Um, they actually have a restaurant education program. Um, and then there's FAIR, which is Food Allergy Research Education. They're a uh, nonprofit and they're like the leader in education and food allergies and stuff. So if I were to connect with FAIR to create a, to do a workshop, what would that, what's the best thing I could do to, to bring this knowledge to the masses? I, I personally don't know like what programs they have in place for restaurants and stuff. I do know that those are the two best resources though when it comes to gluten and out gluten free, you know, yeah. um, celiac and allergies. So do you think that the restaurant should be on the hook for the should they bear this responsibility of keeping people safe? It depends. If they're claiming that they're going to do that, then yes. If they're not, then I believe it's the consumer's responsibility to try to get as much information as possible. Where does the government take responsibility? Because let's let's dial back our conversation. Why are we here in the first place? Yeah, I mean, the the government, it's definitely, there's really not much in place, especially eating out as a consumer with food allergies to that you have to protect you. Yeah. You know. I know there's a lot of documentaries out there about how we industrialize the food system. Mm-hmm. That was a government move. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. what's the what's the effect of industrializing the food system having on us today? Yeah. So I mean, who's respond who's on the hook for this? Right? If yeah. you go back. So why isn't the government getting more involved? Exactly. I mean, that's it's a very big piece of my frustration you know i think a lot of people's frustration is uh, they're also the source behind the problem so how do we hold them accountable <laughs> right yeah these are the questions we need yeah, to be asked absolutely right? we need to we need to dig deep and go why where is this where does this all stem from yeah and then who's responsible absolutely so i mean maybe that's a, another episode yeah that's like a very that that should be a series <laughs> right <laughs> Um, I've really loved our conversation. Uh, you've been great. We're going to take one more quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back to bust out a true speed round. Today's episode is brought to you by Margin Edge. Margin Edge is a restaurant management software that uses POS integration and invoice data to show you your food costs in real time. The beauty of Margin Edge is that the information is immediately available. You take a picture and boom, you have access to it just in time and everything that Margin Edge does is aimed at making your restaurant more efficient. So what exactly do you get with Margin Edge? With Margin Edge, you get automatic invoice processing. You can do this by either taking photos with their app, scanning slash emailing files, or integrating it with a electronic data interchange. You can get daily controllable P&L, including labor data. You can get recipe costing and menu analysis tools, not to mention you also get inventory management and actual versus theoretical usage reports. Margin Edge gives you the prime cost daily, so there are no surprises at the end of the month. By totally digitizing your back office, your team saves hours on paperwork and gets real-time data to manage food costs, labor, and budgets in the moment, not weeks after the period ends. With supply chain disruption and labor shortages, making real-time data-driven decisions is more important than ever. Because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, Margin Edge will cover your onboarding. That means you get 60 days free to get started and up and running before you make your first payment. To learn more, head to me.marginedge.com com slash restaurant hyphen unstoppable or find the banner in the show notes. 
You know Restaurant Unstoppable's mission because I'm constantly echoing it. It's to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. And I could not be more excited to be partnering with Diageo Bar Academy because they have the same goals in I am just filled with hope right now because never before has there been such an abundance of information and resources, and it's because things like Diageo Bar Academy exist. Diageo Bar Academy equips bartenders, servers, managers, and hospitality professionals with the insights, stories, and tools to be better. They're constantly raising the bar on industry standards. No matter your background or your skill level, there is knowledge and new techniques for you waiting over at Diageo Bar Academy that will improve your personal and professional lives. For example, they just launched a new masterclass, Tips for Profitable Menus. With expert tips and step-by-step guidance, their experts give you all the advice you need to craft exciting and profitable menus. With this masterclass, you'll learn how to create eye-catching menu design, how to promote your most profitable drinks, how to understand poor costs and pricing accordingly, and you'll discover how to create well-designed menus that will attract new customers, exceed your regulars' expectations, and maximize upselling and revenue. And it goes far beyond masterclasses like this. You can also join live events and watch all past masterclasses on demand at www.diageobaracademy.com. Whether you're a bartender, owner, operator, or if you're just completely new to the industry, diageobaracademy.com has easy-to-access resources to help you learn new skills and stay in the loop with all the latest industry trends. Diageo Bar Academy is a free online resource for hospitality professionals of all skill levels. Stay informed, inspired, and connected to grow your career or your business by joining Diageo Bar Academy today. Why wait? Visit www.diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. The first question I have for you is, what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Loyalty. What is your biggest weakness? Uh, I bet it's loyalty. uh, (laughs) Yeah. yeah, Honestly. Happens a lot. So so often our biggest strengths are our biggest weaknesses. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, What is one question you ask when you're building your team? So during that interview process, what are you looking for? What are you asking? Um, are are you an empathetic person? Why is empathy so important? Because it's our brand trait. Uh, You have to be empathetic and understand everything that we do is behind empathy. Like the, the attention to detail that we put in every product that we make and how we interact with our customers. Yeah. I think we generally speaking could be more empathetic towards people who are suffering from these allergies. Yeah. Um, you also have to be empathetic with your team members. You know, like you, you have to think about your team members and, and respect them and be think about what kind of a wrench that throws in the kitchen system. When you get somebody who has a serious allergy, a peanut allergy or whatever, like you got to, when you're busy and you're hustling and you got to like stop everything. So, I mean, do you actually have any advice around how you can make that better? Is it dedicating a space in the, the restaurant that's off to the side that is like just sterile? Yeah, I mean, it it just depends on what you're trying to cater to. For gluten, it's um, just like trying to create a separate space. You know, um, 
like even like separate bins. So yeah. like salads, you know, like if you have a salad station and you have croutons on your salad station, and someone's like picking up all the stuff and then they go back to pick up the lettuce. You just made you that'd know, be, lettuce gluten, you know, that'd so. be a cool workshop. Uh, like allergy efficiencies in the, in the kitchen. Yeah. Right? I mean, it, it, I understand it's hard, you know, like a kitchen's a small space and oh, there's a lot going a on in yeah. the system, yeah. but it's, it's important, you know? Yeah. Uh, what is your biggest challenge today? Managing growth. How are you dealing with it? Being patient. Yeah. Uh, what is one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team? This is a way to be a way to act a core value. Empathy. What is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? So this is a, a way to go above and beyond what's expected from the, your guest. Uh, patience. How do you teach patience? Um, so it, explaining. There are a lot of customers that come in that are very scared. They have anaphylactic allergies or they have celiac or whatever. And so they'll walk in and it's everything in our bakery is gluten-free, vegan, and allergy-friendly. All these things. And they'll be a point to a brownie. Uh, is that gluten-free? Yeah. Everything in here is gluten-free. Oh, okay. Well, how about this blueberry lemon donut? Is that well, they're afraid. They're know? absolutely terrified because they've gone somewhere else and someone's told them that it's gluten-free and they've gotten sick exactly. or whatever. Yeah. So patience. Yep. Yeah. What is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant operator? Um, fierce conversations. What's the biggest lesson from that book? Uh, Going back to what I talked about, you know, um, learning how to have tough conversations um, that are productive and being the bad guy or walking the line, um, making sure that your points heard and that clear expectations are communicated. First time recommendation on the show, by the way. Thank you for that. Uh, what is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough? Uh, see their team members as humans. What is one service? you've hired or outsourced. So this is a, a group of people that do something better than you could ever do in house or a, a one, like a technician that, that you hire to do something. My son does my online marketing ads for Google and Facebook and everything. Is he open for business? He, he, he's very, very good. Yeah. What's his business? Um, Mylin marketing. He actually does it for Sonoma flatbreads and Donato's and stuff. Maybe I might be reaching out to him personally yeah. sometime real soon. Um, and we'll link to that in the show notes to help him out. Uh, what is one technology that you've recently adopted in your businesses that's had a huge impact on communication, efficiency, profitability, anything along those lines? Um, I Going back to data, I implemented a loyalty program um, to piggyback on the um, free product coupon that we offer online. So we're able to match up the conversion rates of if people sign up for that free product coupon they come in and sign up so we're able to track how many new people we have come in all that yep. and what is that tool it is through we have clover it's called trezoro loyalty got it and this is the last question it's a doozy get ready for it if you got the news you'd be leaving this world tomorrow all the memories of you your work and your bakeries would be lost with your departure with the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy, what would those three pieces of wisdom be? Lead by example. One. You're only as strong as your team. Two. Attention to detail and quality control are key factors Beautiful. in a successful business. Laura, I've loved this conversation. Thank you so much. We wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. So who do you respect and admire in this industry? That's how I found you. Peter called you out. Who do you respect and admire? If I got them on the show tomorrow, you'd be listening in. 
Adam Grant. Who's Adam Grant? He is a organizational um, psychologist who works with very large companies to help figure out how to build teams or set up processes or um, structure. Adam Grant, look out. I'm coming after you. I'd love to get, that sounds like it's right up my alley. Um, And how can we connect with you if we really enjoyed today's conversation? Maybe we want to come join your team. Maybe we're starting our own gluten-free bakery someplace and we we have questions. What's the best way to connect? Um, You can email me, which is laura at hilllifebakery.com. Or you can slide into our DMs on Instagram. Those are probably the two easiest ways. Beautiful. Laura, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story, to share your knowledge and your mentorship, your perspective. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Thank you. Cheers. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. I hope you guys all found value today. I know I did really enjoyed sharing Laura's story. And I mean, just again, so inspiring. Uh, you can choose to be, I mean, we're all dealt a certain hand, right? And sometimes that, that hand that we're dealt has some cards in it that aren't the most positive, you know? And you can choose to wallow in those difficulties or you can make opportunity. You can use the, these, these negative things that happen to us and we can turn them, we can spin them into opportunity. I think that's just so inspiring. And that's exactly what Laura and her son did. So thank you so much, Laura, for joining us. And we just learned so much today. Uh, so we have some really cool things happening at Restaurant Unstoppable Network this week. I want to let you guys know a reminder that we have a habits club. So basically the habits club is a way for us to learn more about the power of habit and hold each other to our habits that we're trying to uh, create every day. So join the network, be a part of the habit club that meets the second Monday of every month. Uh, we also this week have uh, past guest Crimsy Ramsey joining us. So Crimsy was the founder of Crimsy's Cajun Kitchen. Uh, the, the world's first vegan Cajun restaurant. And she was actually one of the last interviews I did before COVID-19. And during COVID-19, she closed. So she reached out to me and she said, hey, Eric, I would love to do an episode where we just kind of dive into when you know it's time to close. Uh, so we're going to explore that. She also deleted all of her social media accounts. And she is pushing a book that she wrote. And she's not using social media to do it. So I'm really interested in that as well. She's joining us this week, Thursday, the 16th at 2 p.m. Eastern. I'd love to have you guys join us. And next week, we have Peter Lazar, author of Restaurant Strong, uh, last week's guest, joining us live in the network on the 21st to reflect on his episode. Also to reflect on his book, Restaurant Strong. Uh and if you RSVP to that live session, he will send you a copy of his book. But only the first 25 people who RSVP will get a copy of his book. Uh, then the only other thing I want to mention before we say goodbye today is that we have landed on our 2022 uh, Q1 book for our book club. We're going to be uh, reading Traction, Get a Grip on Your Business by Gino Wickman. And uh, this book club is unique because we're not just reading the book, we're, we're holding each other accountable to implementing the lessons from the books we read. So I'd love to have you be a part of that. All happening at Restaurant Unstoppable Network. All right, that's it for today. Thank you guys so much for sticking around this long. Until next time, peace out.